Hello, and welcome to the third season of the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This is the show that's all about pioneers, the rule breakers and game changers who show all of us the route to a better future. Now, we might be in season three, but the context remains stubbornly unchanged. We're grappling with the economic consequences of Brexit, and we're trying to see beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Business as usual doesn't really exist in the way it used to, yet many of our most powerful businesses don't seem to have got the memo. It's time to embrace a radically different model for leadership in our largest organisations, pioneer leadership. My name is Philip Clark, and I'm more excited than ever about the power of pioneer leadership to transform our business culture, society and economy, because we all need to learn to play a long game, to disrupt the status quo and chase a more purposeful future. And you know what? I'm so convinced that we all need to embrace pioneer leadership that I wrote a book about it. It's cleverly titled Pioneers Wanted, a manifesto for radically ambitious leadership. And you'll find it at pioneerswanted.com. So on this podcast, I interview pioneers from all walks of life, exploring their outlook, enjoying their character, admiring and learning from their audacity. And in this episode, I was joined by Louisa Zayan, the COO and co-founder of Toast Ale, the award-winning food tech social enterprise that shows the circular economy can reimagine food production for social and climate impact. We explore the freedom that comes from having true purpose, the surprising intentions of investors, and the miracle properties of white sliced bread. Enjoy the episode. They say that the most frequent reason for companies failing is that ambitious entrepreneurs bring a great idea to market, but it relies on their customers doing something new and unfamiliar, whether it's new tech, new models for buying and selling, or new food and drink brands. For everyone that has made it big, there are plenty that haven't made it at all. So what do you do when your overwhelming personal drive requires a change in behavior beyond all frames of reference? How can you make a meaningful impact on the climate crisis? How can you re-engineer the food system to work better for people and planet? How do you make the tools of business and entrepreneurship deliver more than dumb profits? And how can you possibly take food waste and turn it into something that's truly delicious, that people will pay for, and that wins awards for taste, innovation, and sustainability? Most of us don't dream that big, let alone make it a reality. But my guest today co-founded and scaled a really cool business that challenges an awful lot of everyday wisdom. She navigated her way through the creative hotbeds of law, accounting and financial regulation before getting into sustainability and venturing in the late 2000s. And a decade of disruptive and pioneering ventures has followed. I'd love to tell you more, but let's hear it from the woman herself. Welcome to the show, Louisa Zion. Hello, thank you for having me on. So there's so much I want to get into, but let's quickly go back to the early years, to your early years growing up. I'm interested to know how those early influences on you shaped your outlook and passions that you now see as a pioneer in the world. 
For me, there are two key elements of my early life that I feel has really shaped me. The first is growing up in a very beautiful environment in the natural world. I lived in a small village in in the northwest where my days were spent creating nature diaries, talking to sheep, naming the, the cows, running in fields and forests with friends. And then also spending a lot of time in my own garden with my grandma, uh, growing our own fruit and vegetables, harvesting those, enjoying those, cooking meals together with the the produce that we'd produced. So a lot of very happy memories that were very much intertwined with nature in a way that, you know, we saw we were part of nature. We weren't separate from it. And I feel very grateful for that environment that I grew up in. The second element for me was growing up in a relatively poor household. I grew up in a single parent family. We didn't have a lot of money and so at times life was very difficult. I'm also from a mixed race background and felt there were a lot of prejudices that I faced that maybe I wasn't as aware of or conscious of when I was young but now being able to look back and reflect on some of those experiences in my life I can see how things probably were different for me also I guess being a woman so I felt that I had a lot of challenges in my in my youth both from a poverty and racial perspective and that gave me a real determination to prove people wrong about me um, and who I am and what I'm capable of, but also to bring myself out of that situation and to work really hard to you know create a better a better life for myself as well, which was what took me down that initial route of the financial services. I'd studied law at university because I was unsure what career direction to to take, but I knew that law was a very solid qualification and offered me a lot of potential in the future and then I studied and became an accountant and you know knew that there were lots of opportunities that would also come from that but that was not my passion and reflecting back on that beautiful experience of growing up in nature I felt very much pulled from that part of my life. So I had that tension in my early career of trying to prove myself um, in business, commerce, but having lost this connection with nature as well. I think that's really interesting. And your your kind of, um, your career does look like it splits into those two halves, one solid, sensible, high achieving, but you know, kind of blue chip, do those professional things. And then you spent some time with the Carbon Trust. And then there's a decade after that where you did some really interesting ventures. So give me a sense of whether it felt like a pivot and whether how much deliberate it was. And I'm interested if there was a moment when things changed or when something changed and you thought, actually, I'm really good at all this stuff, but I really want to pursue that stuff. Yes. So I ended up working at the financial services regulator in the UK and I went from feeling bored and feeling that I wasn't really using all of my experience to just feeling completely out of my depth because 
I wasn't passionate about the the work that I was doing and so I like and I think if you're not passionate about what you're doing you can never be very very good at it I learned a lot and you know I was giving a lot but it, it just was it was not working for me I took a career break and traveled around South America I spent a couple of years learning Spanish and wanted to go out on my own and put that new language to work, meet new people um, and see a different part of the world. And that experience really changed me. The first important step was just taking myself out of this comfort zone and realising that although it felt scary, it was really rewarding. I felt that I was suddenly free and I had this huge opportunity then to direct the life in the way that I really want to go. While I was traveling, uh, as like 2000, 2006, I was reading a lot about um, what was happening in the world. And around that time, Al Gore was doing a lot of work on climate change, which was a relatively new topic to me at that that stage I'd not really I'd heard about it in the background but I I hadn't seen that it was a business problem and an opportunity for business to step up and take action to create uh, create change to to address the climate crisis and I think it was at that stage that two things two elements really aligned for me that I had this incredible grounding in business and professional skills and here was this problem with the natural world that needed solving. And that for me then was an opportunity to bring my skills um, and my passion together. So yeah, I, I returned back to the UK and joined the Carbon Trust where I trained uh, working in carbon footprinting. I did a master's as well part-time in environmental decision-making and I gained a lot of skills, a lot of understanding and a lot of incredible networks, a lot and and saw how many people there were that were also passionate about supporting or, or pushing businesses to change. But even then, I I felt that the frustrations of maybe advising a company that couldn't quite get the business case through a board and get that approved and get action taken or recommendations potentially being watered down to satisfy other stakeholders within the business and just the level of ambition not delivering and it was just a, quite frustrating at times to see that there was a huge opportunity for change and yet there was a lot of organizations businesses people that were kind of a little bit stuck in the business as usual the, the just the status quo of the way we do things maybe making incremental changes but not really looking to shift their own business but certainly not looking to shift industries and, and systems and then I left the carbon trust after my son was born to just stop and and think about what I wanted to do and how I could use my skills and my passion to lead on these issues that I I had not seen others leading on I trained in marketing as well and was doing some freelance when my son was very young and then met Tristram Stewart who's a campaigner on the 
the food systems really just he'd been a big inspiration for me for a, a long time and I loved the work that he was doing we talked about food waste as the, one of the huge problems but also a really delicious and engaging opportunity for us to address address climate change address deforestation biodiversity loss soil erosion water use and the opportunity to address it through a beer so you can't i can't let you just stop it there you just saw this uh, people don't go food waste beer was it something he'd been sitting on for a while do you just like beer a lot how did it come about no so the food waste problem we'd been working on for a, a long time. Tristram had set up a charity called Feedback who campaigned for changes in government and industry level. They're the organisation that has brought public awareness about wonky fruit and veg to the forefront and they've done a lot of work behind the scenes. Tristram had met a brewer in Brussels who'd partnered up with the local bakery and taken some surplus bread and, and brewed a beer. And it had been done before. There are beers such as a kvass, a Russian-style beer-type drink that is brewed with bread. And But this beer tasted good, and that was the real difference. This was a great-tasting craft beer that stood up in a bar, in a pub, in a, or on a retail shelf against any other beer and that really was the lightning moment that we could create a product that was circular that was positive and it would be as good if not better tasting than the alternative so yeah it, that for us was was really key this uh, brewery the brussels beer project that had produced this beer had done it as a collaboration a lot of breweries collaborate with others to use different ingredients in their beer it's a very innovative industry in terms of product development but I think the difference was we saw it as an opportunity to create a scalable solution to food waste um, that could take a product like bread that is wasted in at a huge scale so about 44% of the bread in the UK is never eaten and we could extend the life of that bread obviously bread only lasts for a few days on, on the shelves a beer through the fermentation process can last for a very long time so create a stable product that is both reducing bread waste also the funds from that beer rather than giving dividends to to shareholders can be used to support charities that are trying to change the system but most importantly it's a message in a bottle it is a way of engaging people who may have not otherwise known about food waste about environmental issues maybe you know not really it been on their agenda but doing so in a in a really fun and interesting way what better way to talk to people than over a pint of beer so I want to unpack a whole load of the things that you, you said there. Did it feel, though, this was, what, 2015? Did it feel like you were in a moment where all of these trends were were colliding? Craft beer was a hot thing. There was a greater awareness of social enterprise. We're more sensitive because of the work Tristram had done, as you say, about the food system and, and how we're wasting and how we're eating greater awareness of the role of business, greater awareness of the climate crisis. Did it feel like all of these things were coming together? Or was it just, hey, this would be cool, let's run at it for a while? 
It felt like very early in the at the right moment. Uh, so certainly the craft beer industry, which had started a boom in the US, had come to the UK and was growing very quickly. There was a greater level of awareness of environmental issues, but still, I would say not with the general you know general public it still was certainly not broad enough but it was there and it was coming and it had to come faster so it was certainly on the horizon and there were also quite a number of early stage startups and entrepreneurs that were looking at food waste as an opportunity through the circular economy and other industries outside of food and drink as well So it was a really exciting time. There was lots of things bubbling under, but nothing really that had taken off. And, you know, it felt like we were at the beginning of uh, of a wave. So we didn't really know where it would go, but it certainly felt like we could help to push it in the direction that it needed needed to move. Love it. So in a moment, I want to get into a number of the characteristics of the organization which are very distinctive and about more than scale and profit. But if we look solely through the business lens to start with, just I want to give people a sense of the journey that that you went on in scaling the business, in distribution, the way you grew the business, the way you went beyond the UK. Give us a sense of those kind of uh, two, three, four years where you were growing the business, growing footprint. What did that look like? What did that feel like? What kind of scale have you been able to achieve? So we launched in London and the UK in at the beginning of 2016. We, in those early days, we focused on the retail because we didn't have access to pubs and bars. Uh, a lot of the taps in a lot of the pub chains are tied, and if you don't have your own estate, it can be quite difficult. So we are yeah, very much focused on retail where we could package the beer and, and get it to people as quickly as possible. We also contract brewed and have continued to contract brew. So that meant that we could get started very quickly working with our recipes and with our brewer, but essentially renting the facilities at an existing brewery, knowing that that meant we could also scale very quickly as we needed to so for, probably for the first year very focused on retail we went quite early in our journey into some of the supermarkets so Waitrose co-op um, and more recently Accardo have been key customers for, for Toast um, throughout our journey and then as we have grown we've also looked to go into more uh, of the on trade but probably through restaurants and events more so than pubs which both has been easier for us to access but also it aligns really beautifully with the brands because we're all about the food system so food is so a perfect pairing for for toast both in terms of the story and, and the taste as well so working with restaurants has been really important for us and we raised some equity funding in 2018 with a view to growing the business internationally as well as putting more resources in the rest of the UK. And 
so we invested in a business uh, subsidiary in the US based in New York. We also had franchises or subsidiaries in Iceland, South Africa, uh, Brazil, and and we experimented in, in Ireland a little as well. The idea was that we wanted to be able to scale the business in a way that didn't also significantly increase the footprint we didn't want to just export we did that's essentially shipping heavy liquid around the world when there are brewers that already exist there's a food waste problem yeah. everywhere um and there are also local charities that um, benefit from the support internationally as well so that was the model of growth i think we did experience challenges as a fairly small team enable in order to support the growth of of the business in those markets and we have maintained relationships from a collaboration perspective but we've pulled toast out of those areas for now anyway while we focus much more on the UK um, and the opportunities that exist here it was it felt like growth but it wasn't real growth because it just stretched the team and and diluted, I think, the impact that, that we were having. But we've learned so much about that process and we've been able to support other breweries. You know, there are brewers in Singapore, for example, that are brewing with surplus bread now and we've been able to offer support and advice to them in terms of growing and scaling the impact of what we mm. do as a business and not necessarily scaling the size, the commercials uh, of our, our company, but the impact is as important to us. And that's interesting because I know that you measure in a much broader and more holistic way than a lot of organizations would. And it looks like you're ambitious, right? And you're ambitious and you've run at things and some of it works and some of it didn't necessarily work. I remember seeing um, news that you'd brewed through enough bread to kind of like double the height of Everest and uh you know you were selling in New York and all this really cool stuff I remember I'd only drunk I think I'd probably bought toast on on a card or on on from Waitrose but I remember thinking hey this is cool and I think at one point you're at a workplace where friends of mine were and I just think I remember keep I kept thinking your story was very cool and I'd see press releases about scale and think well it's going in the right direction now everybody in the food and drink business then ran into the reality of coronavirus. And for some people, it was okay. And they were built for that. For other people, it was the end very quickly. What was your experience of running into the world of lockdown and the utterly crazy 18 months, two years that we've had since 2019? Yes, the COVID and the lockdown hit the entire hospitality industry very badly and included toast. We, however, um, I guess we're in a fairly good position in terms of being with it, with those key retailers and not as reliant on the on-trade. We also had our own web shop that we'd, we'd set up within about a month. So I think by April that was up and running. We, we already had a website and and relationships from a distribution perspective, but we hadn't put a lot of investment into into e-commerce. So that we pivoted to very quickly with a real strategic focus on that. And that certainly helped us. What we also did right at the beginning was to say, how can we better support our communities? Uh, So both the food industry 
and uh, uh, you know, people locally to all of us because it was it's so core to what toast does and and who we are as individuals we knew that the supply chains for many of our restaurant customers were left with without routes to market for their products and that food was just going to end up going to waste and then at the same time there were increasing numbers of people who were struggling to put food on the table so we devised a campaign to support those wholesalers to get food to organized charities and other organizations community groups who could either redistribute it or create meals and get those out to people so our initial pivot was our e-commerce but also supported by this the meal deal we called it to to support others and we also faced having to furlough some of our team but we have such strong values within the business that we also focused on how to keep them involved and many of them went and volunteered for those same charities that we were providing financial support to as well which meant that we were able to you know feel that we were giving both to our our team our people and also the local community and to maintain that supportive network so and this goes a little to as you say to your values but you know something like 50,000 people uh, vulnerable people got meals because of your meal deal campaign I understand and you had all of those sort of demand side challenges but but I know that you had supply side challenges as well your your main provider of bread I understand it went under during the crisis wow it must have felt like it was coming from all sides yes we have lots of bakeries that approach us with surplus bread. There is so much surplus in our supply chains. And that's both from companies like Adderley, who we were originally working with, who are a sandwich manufacturer. They take the heel end of the loaf. And usually that would be discarded because we don't buy packaged sandwiches made with that part of, of the loaf. It's bakeries that are having to bake to forecasts from supermarkets and those those orders that they finally get which depends on what's left on the shelf for a supermarket is is always different and they have to overproduce anyway because you can't short the supermarket without facing financial penalties and risks of continuation of supply so there's overproduction that's built into the system also any new product launches the bakeries have to test the whole process through the supply chain so you know, if a new loaf is appearing on the shelves, that has to go through the full testing. And then that bread is not actually ending up on the shelf because it's not yet listed. So that is being wasted. There's a lot of bread being wasted. So we already had relationships with other suppliers and we were working to try to support those. It was so sad to see what had happened to Adelie, the people that we knew really well leading that business and, you know, the very the people on the production lines that were dependent on those jobs as well you know you have to couch the impact on your business with the human impact that is being experienced as well other challenges we had the huge increase in e-commerce meant there was a shortage of card the huge increase in people buying packaged products we had a shortage of aluminium cans as things have progressed we've obviously seen some of the impacts of brexit with the shortage of hgv drivers and right now the shortage of co2 um, <laughs> from a supply side over the past 18 months it has felt a little bit like it's just one thing after another 
I have to say, though, Louisa, I've got a quote in front of me from you, which says, there's always a new problem and I love a challenge. More for you. <laughs> no, th- but it's true. Right? Think life would be boring if, if it was too easy. And it's, I think it's during those problems that you face as a business that you find better ways of operating you know and hopefully you leapfrog over what you would have been doing otherwise it forces you out of any comfort zone that you might have it helps you to build more resilience into the business and after you've taken a number of hits you're expecting them to come so you know we got to the end of last year just as we were coming out of lockdown I can't remember now number two or number three and certainly we didn't as a business feel okay this is over now we can rest on our laurels and get back to as as we were before we've had to constantly stay on our feet and we're always looking at as we plan for the next stage of growth for the business what could those challenges be for us um, but also where are the opportunities that that will come out of it and how do we position ourselves um, to lead in some of those so one of the things that you've talked about today or you've touched on today you've talked about a lot before is the fact that the organization is a really distinctive blend of really a holistic blend of different purposes and what i want to do there's quite a lot that you guys are doing there's quite a lot that you stand for and i want to just throw at you some phrases which will be familiar with to people but who may not live and breathe that in their businesses i'd like you briefly to explain what it what it is but also why it's meaningful to you if that's okay so let's just start with an easy one you're a b corp what does being a b corp mean and why are you a b corp Being a B Corp is being part of, for me, part of a community of businesses that want to use business to create a better world. Technically, it is a company that has met a minimum standard of environmental and social responsibility, accountability and transparency. Um, So there is an audit process as you're looking to become a B Corp that looks across different pillars of the organization from the way you interact with your customers uh, your supply chain your community but also the impacts that you have on the environment and how all of that sits within your governance structure and then you make a commitment as part of becoming a b corp to continuous improvement so every three years you go through a recertification process that looks at both ensuring that as your business has grown and changed, you have you've not fallen backwards, but also that you've built in improvements to to your business, and that might be from an environmental perspective. Uh, so, you know, have you done more work to under better understand your your carbon footprint and and take action as a result? Also, looking at water, plastic, you know, all of the other environmental issues, carbon not being um, the sole one. It could be social. So, looking at the work that uh, you're doing with your teams, the policies that the that you offer, the support that that you give the teams, the investment that you're putting into people. It's a very thorough audit that also it acts as a benchmark against other organizations that have completed that impact assessment so you have a a score out of 200 points you have to score 80 to certify and then yeah you aim to increase your score as much as possible but you can see those key areas where there's an opportunity to improve and then you 
decide for yourself what is important for us as a business where does our focus need to be and invest in the work to do that our business is on the journey to being a b corp i think we um might uh, i've got a good friend who uh, uh is one of the leadership team at ella's kitchen and um they um they're real advocates for it and i think when i looked into it more they were very passionate and telling us we ought to get into it when i looked at it more i realized this is a group of all the businesses i like and admire and who are making the hard choices to do the right things. And um, that's a pretty cool club to be a part of. Let's talk about equity for good. This is quite an an interesting and different thing. This is all about your profits improve the food system. Explain that one to us. So when we decided to look at equity funding for the business, we were very conscious that we were A, bringing in new people who had powers to decide or to direct the decisions that we were making as a business and also we would financially reward in those individuals as well and so it was how do we bring in really fantastic people who support the business but how do we ensure any profits that are made through investing in toast don't go to undo some of the good work that we are doing and so we devised a program called equity for good now all of our profits go to charity so we don't have distributable dividends and those investors have already accepted that they were they don't receive dividends the thing about equity for good is that we've said they have to make a pledge that any net profits that they make if they sell their shares in toast they'll reinvest those in businesses with an environmental mission or they can donate them to charity but we believe that we want to support business as a force for good and so investing if we can support investment in other businesses we can support move to a a more sustainable and regenerative economy not just business. Now you're talking about this in a very clear way, but this is quite radical. When you were fundraising, did you find that this pulled in particular distinctive type of investors who believe this stuff already? Or did you find it turned off a lot of people who otherwise would have thought you were a cool and investable business? I guess we approached people who we felt this was aligned with in the first place. It was one of the reasons that we didn't go through a crowdfund process in that first stage, because it is a difficult concept to explain to people. We're not saying that people can't make profits by selling their shares, but there is a restriction that's put on what you do with those profits. And many people wouldn't accept that. So those initial conversations we were having with potential investors, we'd already identified people that we knew would be interested. But also we see the businesses with an environmental mission can still deliver huge returns for individuals and we really believe in the future of those types of businesses so the fact that we're restricting an investor to support one of those businesses shouldn't be seen as a negative a negative hold over over that money they can potentially make a huge amount of money by that second investment it's just that we want to yeah for them to be thinking about how that money goes on to better society there were a few people we spoke to who it didn't fit with them and that was maybe not even from a personal motivational perspective but they may have been part of a fund and the it just became a little bit too restrictive but there were other organizations 
for example, National Geographic is one of our investors who have their own foundation, a charitable foundation. And so any profits that they make from investing in Toast, they can invest into their own foundation. So it's generating capital for furthering the work that they are doing anyway. And then we have an incredible mix of people who yeah, impact investors, fund some just really awesome, cool people that that love toast and uh, and wanted to be a part of it and support us, and having those the patient investors, so they understand that their money is helping to deliver positive impact um, now, and that is much better than um, maybe some of the philanthropical giving that they may have done otherwise. So we've ended up in this really fantastic situation of having. A set of investors that support our mission. I think it's really interesting. We were talking before we started recording about Carbon Trust and that original mission to make business sense of climate change. And it felt like, and, and I was on the outside of, of that organization, you were on the inside. It felt like you know, that was a lot of government push and there were some early pioneer businesses who got it but couldn't always make big changes. Like the way you say, they were often hamstrung. It feels like now a decade or so on, businesses are taking the mantle Many of them aren't, but there are businesses taking the mantle and leading and looking at government and saying, come on, guys, you are now behind. You are not stepping up to be accountable. And I think that's really interesting. And I think it's great that there are clearly a growing number of investors who want to be part of that acceleration journey by investing in toast and like-minded businesses. And another thing I think that's distinctive about you is the open character of the business, how much you're about collaboration how much you're about togetherness, whether that's, you know, open source recipe. You know, we're recording this just ahead of um, COP stuff in, in in Glasgow. And I know that you've been part of a collaborative movement of brewers. Tell us about, about that brewing community and, and the part you play in bringing those points of view together. I think that's interesting. Yes, we've just launched a new campaign called the Companion Series. The name is taken from the Latin com with and panis bread and it literally means somebody that you enjoy a meal with the idea being that we are bringing together organizations in a really fun and yeah mutually supportive way to further the big changes that are really needed Uh, we are a very small business and we are limited in terms of the impact that we can have by by making the changes that we have the control to make. Many of our impacts are dependent on huge suppliers or huge customers. And if we want to achieve the change that we want to see in the world, we need to deliver systemic change. Uh, We need the systems to change, and we are not going to do that alone. So we, um, for the companion series, have brought together 24 other breweries. We've brewed 26 beers for COP26, all brewed with surplus bread. The idea being that we want to introduce a lot of these breweries to circular economy principles, but make it as simple as possible by overcoming some of the barriers. We have spent the past nearly six years working on source the best ingredients. So breads, for example, we 
the best type of bread for brewing is sliced white or brown bread. Anything with oils or fruits becomes very complicated. So how anyway, how to source that? Then it needs to be prepared. You need to remove a lot of the moisture from the bread to get the efficiencies out of brewing and then how to use it in the brewing process. And there are so many stumbling blocks from a production perspective that if it's not core to what the business is about it's too difficult so we've made it very simple we've supplied the crumb ourselves um, to those breweries and we've brought them all together so that we can have a much louder voice we've put out an open letter to governments um, that are meeting at at COP26 in, uh, in November to say that we need change the, we are in a climate crisis and we need governments to commit to clear targets, but also action to meet those targets. And the only way to do that is for cooperation to happen between governments and, and other you know, civil societies and business. We want to demonstrate that as an industry, we are here to collaborate and We have seen our customers really excited and wanting business to respond and wanting leadership from government. And so now we want to see that happen at COP26. We're we're saying you have permission and business is asking you to lead and, um, and it's time for governments to step up to do that. So you've been a a leader in this movement and in your business, obviously, and in the industry. If we step away a little bit from Toast the Business and come back to you as an individual, if you reflect on the last five or so, five or six years, how have your character and your own beliefs evolved through all of the ups and downs that you've been through? Uh, I have become, I think, even more determined than myself. but both because of having to overcome some of the challenges that we've faced and knowing that we are on the right track. What we are doing is really positive for society. And if we can move others along with us, then we can really have an impact. Um, And also because of the incredible positive reaction that we've had to what we're doing, you know, to, from people enjoying our beer to people you know wanting to know about the business model and yeah everything from social enterprise to b corp equity for good etc and that i guess has really spurred me on we've also i've also witnessed you know a huge increase in the number of organizations that are you know both from startups to really huge companies that are now innovating and pushing for change uh, making commitments and hopefully they are followed with action plans that, that will be delivered but now it feels like there's a race on uh, it's a good race it's the so there's an organization we've partnered with called race to zero it is we now are racing to get to a position of uh, of net zero because we have to and I feel more determined than ever to do that Beyond your world, then, what pioneer initiatives, you've already talked about Race to Zero, if you were to point people to particular pioneer initiatives or individuals that really excite you, are there one or or two that you'd say, hey, check this out, this is really exciting? So we've just 
Brudebeer with three separate organisations, Race to Zero uh, being one of them, Business Declares another, and Zero Hour, which is the uh, Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill. I think all of those organisations are doing incredible things. The Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill in particular is is really important now. I think we need legislation that is forcing action for both climate and nature. And I'm really like wanting to support that. It also enables people to not think about themselves as a consumer. We have to get away from this sort of pigeonholing of individuals as like the power you can have is in the products that you buy and putting that kind of guilt on people as well we do have power by the way we spend our money but the real power that we have is in our ability to influence government and we all have elected representatives our members of parliament our local mps who have a voice on behalf of the community and so i think it's really important the work that's being done both through the CEE bill, which which is now called Zero Hour, um, and Toast, our, our previous campaign also has a functionality that enables people to write directly to their local MP. Um, it's it's yeah, cr- making sure that people feel the role as citizens is is critically important. Um, and then there's lots of really incredible things happening. The I don't know if uh, you've seen the recent Earthshot Prize. I think it's really fantastic to be focusing on the solutions and getting people excited about these incredible people that are delivering change and to see that being led by people like David Attenborough and Christina Figueres and yeah that for me is that's where the excitement is focusing on the solutions. Thank you, Louise. I get the sense that you are just getting started with the Toastale story and all of the things that, that are coming out of it. I'm keen for people to know how to get more involved. You, you've just talked about some ways people can get active. If people want to find out more about you or the business or, or the many interests you have, how can they follow you? To find out about Toast, you can go to toastale.com, our website. All of our latest campaigns are on there. Uh, or follow on social media at Toast Ale. And I am on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to engage with me. I'll do my and, best. Uh, I'm not on it very often. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, cool. Yeah. But people can buy your delicious ale at the supermarkets you mentioned and direct from you online as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Waitrose, Ocado and Co-op uh, all stock our beer and lots of incredible restaurants and bars, particularly around the UK. Awesome, Louisa. Good luck with all that you have planned for Toast. We're excited to see you realise your vision to the full. Thank you so much for joining me today on Pioneers Wanted. Thank you so much. It was so good to record that episode with uh, Louisa. I'm a Toast Ale customer, a very happy one, and I would encourage you to become one too. Do show your support at toastale.com and get stuck into supporting their mission. Drink beer, change the world. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do like, subscribe and review us. Go to pioneerswanted.com to buy a hardback copy of the Pioneers Wanted book, or go to Amazon to get the ebook or audiobook. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brillianthunch.com or follow me at PJA Clark.